I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Slightly tangential to Star Trek. Um, I only, I've never been there before. I've been to Yosemite before, but I know that El Capitan is a mountain in Yosemite because of Star Trek V. Because in when James T. Kirk, Captain Starship Captain, Womanizer, and Thrill Seeker takes his shore leave, he wants to do something insane. Um, uh, because, even though he's a man in his 50s, I would imagine by this point. They're trying to establish he's older than Star Trek II, but he's still old enough that he can climb up the side of a mountain without ropes. And there was a movie from last year, I think it's one of the documentary, the Oscar-nominated documentary called Free Solo, about this 30, 20, late, late 20s kid from Colorado, I think, who's the first person to climb up El Capitan without, by himself without ropes. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was but, like, I was like, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. James T. Kirk already did this, right? But he did it in the 23rd century. That's true. That's true. The, and, the record uh, for for climbing El Capitan was in no danger of being broken. As but Fox uh, said. can this kid figure out all that stuff to build a gun to shoot the Gorn? <laughs> yeah. That's my Probably question. Probably not. Probably not. Well, the the through line for the for Free Solo is that the the guy was basically his his dad was somewhere on the autism spectrum and his laser focus of being able to climb this mountain was just like a product of the fact that he obviously was like an incredibly fit human being but also he just had a sort of single-mindedness where nothing else in his life even even counted but the thing about kirk is is he's just like a fucking jack of all trades right he can starship captain he can climb el capitan with no problem I guess he had to have a rocket boost I mean, to he help also, him, but yeah, he also knows how to do basic scientific principles. He sure. knows how to do things. So you mean he can you mix things in a lab? They right? generally don't have to dumb things down that much for Kirk, and he's usually the one that dumbs things down for other people because he understands Spock. Hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, and he usually puts it into something where where well, Chekhov can understand. What's the one job on the ship that Kirk can't do? That's the real question. Um. Medical stuff? Could he, oh yeah, he, he can, he's not a doctor. He could he could set a bone right, but he couldn't I, do that. I think he has basic first aid. The premise always seemed to be that if you got to be the captain, you had to know a little bit about every department, right? So you can jump in and and run the navigator station when your navigator's you know falling over with a space spasm of some kind. That's, that's, um, and that's perhaps the thing about this the the Star Trek reboot that I liked the least is that the idea had to be that within the span of the first movie, Kirk had to go from being a just graduated or nearly graduated cadet to a captain to make that leap. And I think it's more interesting if you want to talk about a Kirk story, if you want to do prequels, which I don't, if you want to do a a young Kirk story, I'd be more interested to know what kind of a first officer or a lieutenant Kirk was before he just sort of was like, okay, Captain Bike's gone. All right, here we go. Instant captain. Yeah, that story actually has been told in the novels. It's right. an expanded universe kind of a thing. Um, there was a series of paperbacks set at Starfleet Academy with young Kirk and young Spock, all of which now wiped out of, of continuity. If, of you, if that's your jam, I don't much care. Um, there, there have been other Starfleet Academy novels after the movie the the chris pine movie Mm -hmm. there were a series of hardcovers set at starfleet academy that were prequels to the movie as but i don't i I care less about that and the fact that there are 
there are adventures of Jim Kirk that aren't like in between betting alien women at Starfleet Academy because there's there was clearly like there had to have been at least a decade of more of Kirk's career between graduation and I'm the captain of the Enterprise or actually between I'm graduation and during the time say when Robert April or Pike is captain of the Enterprise where's Kirk then like Well it's also the fact that it takes him a while to get there Kirk is really young for a captain um he's like what in his 30s in the original series That's and- always been part of the backstory is that Kirk is the youngest captain in Starfleet yeah, at the time of the original series. But Kirk Academy level Kirk was also established to be boring by the book, um, very studious, very, very gung-ho. He was not a fun guy. He was not a womanizer. Hmm. That came later. That's why Finnegan picked on him. It's kind of funny when you you look at a nerd. Hmm. When you look at Kirk, um, a lot of the perspective we have on Kirk really isn't reflected in the original Star Trek series. It's more about the like everyone seemed to really kind of nail down who these characters were in the in the Abrams reboot, except for Kirk for the first two movies because those were really kind of based on the public perception of Kirk as he sleeps with every green woman and he's this completely reckless guy and Kirk plays a lot of poker but he's very by the book in a lot of ways and he's a lot more mature in a lot of ways in the original series than they usually portray him and it isn't really until chris pine is in star trek beyond that he gets to play the classic kirk well yeah see you can if you poke the first two with a stick they just fall apart um star trek beyond is the one that i liked and i'm very sad that apparently they're not going to do anymore. Yeah, it's too bad. Because that was when they finally them. nailed it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they 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 had a, they had things running forward. I think they wanted to bring Chris Hemsworth back and him and Chris Pine, the Chris's that killed the 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 prime or the not the prime universe, the alternate universe. Uh, but I think we've said this before: is they're clearly just focusing on making a dearth of TV for TV stuff right now, which. Probably they should make more TV stuff. I I I want them to, I want them to do a the Picard show. I want them to show twenty five years plus. I want them to do the Lower Decks cartoon show. I I want to because I give give more writers to not have to do like the main line of continuity. Do well, some do some other interesting shit. Well, that's kind of how I feel about it too. Um, I think some of this ancillary stuff could work in the movies, but I don't know how you market it to a studio exec it's just harder to do you need it because the movies um, need to perform at a certain level and tv shows don't need to make a billion dollars i know so. and there's also the phenomenon of star directors abrams i mean i gotta give him credit because he relaunched a thing everybody thought was dead but abrams vision of star trek is not my vision of star trek yeah, yeah you never really get to see much of the world that it exists in and it was a bit more militaristic than than what we saw clearly in beyond where beyond showed me a, a vision of a future it was like oh god that space station looks really cool to live on I well, want to. I the, want to live in a world that's like that. And actually, talking about how much well, better we are. Beyond was first of all, it was scripted by Simon Pegg, who looks like the first guy that actually saw the show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And um, no, I mean Orsi and Kurtzman, who wrote the first two of the reboot movies, definitely were Star Trek fans of a sort. I think they were just hacks, and so they didn't get 
they got something part of it. They got the, you know, I would say they got the brain stem of Star Trek. They just didn't get the rest of the brain, you know. I guess so. I I don't know. I just, I mean, I loved that first one so much when it came out, but it was just the joy of seeing old friends, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the cast really killed it yeah they, that i will say uh, this uh, but abrams if he does one thing remarkably well it's casting he picks really perfect people for his movies even if the movie itself doesn't live up to that casting i don't know the the thing that people get wrong about star trek a lot of the time and this is going to sound weird coming from me because i like star trek to be smarter than it was in the first two movies but uh, but really and truly when star trek worked the 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 Roddenberry Messiah tour that he did through conventions all through the 70s and 80s and 90s is what really hurt the franchise, I think, more than anything else, because it gave people the idea that it was supposed to be this thing over here when really Star Trek works the best as kind of a naval adventure in space. Mm-hmm. It's in, you know, in the early days, Roddenberry himself said it's hornblower in space. And that's just about right. You, you have a naval crew in a very isolated situation that are stuck with tricky diplomatic problems. And sometimes you, you have like natives or foreign nationals pulling guns on you and you are the only person in the on the scene you're the only ship in the quadrant whatever it's it's up to you you need to solve the problem without blowing up the entire international society that's around you right and that is the best way to find tension in a star trek story the best star trek stories were always about duty versus personal obligation one of the things that I, I love that we got to see with the original Star Trek cast coming back for movies, it's something I don't think we're going to get to see again, because I think now when, I guess you could say the tour of duty as an actor, as a certain character ends, we now go into the mindset of rebooting it. We're now probably talking about who's going to play the next uh, Wolverine in something. Right. That you don't have that continuation. You don't go on and go a little bit further. One of the cool things about Captain Kirk as a character is that because actors necessarily age, you're forced to change the sorts of stories you tell about Kirk. You don't... It's not like with Batman. Batman, unless you tell a possible future Dark Knight Returns type story where he's older, Batman will always be 30 to 35. That He's always going to be in that age. He's always going to be in his prime, doing those adventures forever. Um, William Shatner wasn't 30 forever. And you get to tell some stories like Star Trek II, which is about Captain Kirk turning like 50. That he is having a midlife crisis. There's that moment on the bridge where he needs to read a screen and he just goes and takes those little glasses out. And I, I, I just, you know what? I need to do this. I just need to put these glasses on in front of other people. Fuck it. And it's a great little human moment that if he never aged, he'd never have. It's the same thing in Star Trek six. Captain Kirk is starting to realize that he's a figure from a past age and that his own preconceptions and his own bigotries are coming to a head and that this new world doesn't really have place for somebody like him anymore. And that it's, it, he gets that one chance moment of redemption of his preconceptions and he gets to be a hero one last time, but he's handing the ship off at the end. And that's the part of it that I really love is that you don't get that if you keep these characters static and you keep sort of setting back to zero every few years is that getting to see an in-canon middle-aged Kirk is pretty fucking great. Mm-hmm. 
Where where do you get that almost anywhere else? Actually, that was, I think... The- Shaft. <laughs> yeah, Shaft. Shaft is getting a third movie. Oh, that's movie. right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a, I kind of fucking really love cool. that. I do fucking love that. That's really I'm cool. one of like the eight people that love the Samuel L. Jackson Shaft just to death. Wait, didn't it have Christian Bale as a racist yeah, antagonist? Yeah, Christian Bale was the villain. I need Van- to see it again. Once again, Vanessa Williams was the uh, damsel in distress that mm. we have to hide out. Mm. Um, or no, she was his fellow cop. There was another witness that he had to hide out. Um, she was Shaft's partner on the force. You know, what's kind of great is that there's three movies just called Shaft and they're sequels to each other. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, what order do I watch them in? Okay. If you watch Shaft and then you watch Shaft <laughs> and then you watch Shaft. Um, but I kind of love oh, that they're keeping that great. continuity and going over oh, basically doing a third generation Shaft now. And right. I kind of love it. Shaft is a legacy character. When did I, that yeah, happen? I do love that. Yeah. I completely love it. I don't kind of love it. I just flat out love it. I think it's awesome. I think it's great in keeping the... Especially since, I mean, granted, I've only seen the trailer, but... Apparently, the new guy is kind of bad at being Shaft. <laughs> I, you know, he's, I he's hear not that holding up one the... bad mother. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting the impression that Samuel L. Jackson, Generation 2, is kind of pissed off that Generation 3 is just not getting it done. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and Richard Roundtree's uh, back in it, too. Oh, That's yeah. Great. As uh, Shaft Prime. They can't, they can't be too much. Uh, the age difference between Richard Roundtree and Samuel L. Jackson can't be that great. It's like I think Samuel Jackson's 20 like, years, maybe? No, because Richard Roundtree can't be 80, can he? He's pretty old. He's pretty this old. This is the 70s he was shaft. He's, his hair is snow white. But <laughs> yeah. As Fred Williamson said once in an interview, black don't crack, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, nothing shows that more than just like how put together uh, Samuel Jackson is. I mean, he's in his late 60s now. He's not 70 yet. We established this on a previous episode where I was like, is he 70? Yeah. I think he's 68 or 69. They, for the new Miss uh, Captain Marvel movie, I think they must have done a little bit of the digital de-aging since he's supposed to be 25 it's years It's the first younger. movie where he's had hair in a long time. I know, I know. And it was kind of jarring. I'm like, oh my God. And then you realize he used to have hair most of the time. And um, I, I will say this again, hashtag um, representation matters. I like having some heroic bald characters <laughs> uh, on the screen. Um, but yeah, uh, he's he's been a he's been a good heroic bald guy for a while. Then you should love the new Hobson Shaw movie coming yes. out. That's two very no, heroic. The bald Fast guys. and the Furious has been a great franchise <laughs> for bald people. I will say that uh, whether it's uh, The Rock and Vin Diesel and uh, Tyrese Gibson and uh, now Jason Statham. Jason Statham, I will say this: I fucking love that. He's like, no, I'm not going to shave my head. I'm going to be balding, and I'm still going to be a badass and a sex symbol. And you know, well, good honestly, for him. I feel about Jason Statham the way you guys feel about Arnold. I I really? will watch. I love his movies. I have a shitload of his movies at home, even the shitty ones. Yeah, he's um, a lot of fun. He's uh, tremendous fun. I think the things that you guys enjoy about Arnold, I enjoy about Jason Statham. Oh, he's fun. I think the thing that sets apart most of Jason Statham's early career is that there was a, you know, it's kind of started with the Transporter movies and there have been untold numbers of Jason Statham movies that are Transporter-like movies. That oh, just crank, man. Clones. Crank. But a lot of those uh, were Asian action directors that sort mm. of, that, that, that either glommed onto him or he sought them out. Um, that had started to export a lot of the ingenuity and the talent coming from Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan. That could well like that. be, but he's actually done a lot of work with uh, Luke 
Besson, the Nikita oh, that's right. guy. Yeah. And yeah. um Luke Besson. He, he he's he's great. Luke Besson is great. Uh I know Valer- Valerian Valerian is one that we, you know, Mike and I both thought there was a kind of a failure really as a movie, but it's like the There's a lot of things in that movie to love. There's a lot there's a lot of amazing stuff where no one else is doing that. No one else would be given the free reign to do I that. I still say one of the best cinematic characters of the past ten years is the tour guide at uh, Big Market in yes. Valerian. That yeah. guy is fucking wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, I think um I kind of love that movie for existing, even though it is very flawed. Um, but yeah, Jason Statham is one of those guys. Hobbs and Shaw, I think it's kind of great that The Fast and the Furious is giving up the illusion that this is not a series of superhero movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's kind of great because there's three actors in as the leads of this movie who are amazing, but typically get a lot of substandard stuff that doesn't quite live up to their awesomeness. And it feels like the fast and the furious knows how to use Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson and Idris Elba to their full extent. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, Idris Elba has superpowers and he's <laughs> bulletproof. <laughs> isn't, sure. isn't this kind of the example that we were talking about with the X-Files of how to recast things and still give people what they come for? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think didn't Hobbs and Shaw was a, was pl- planned, I think as of the last movie, but there has been substantial fallout between um, Dwayne Johnson and Vin Diesel. Yeah, they Vin are Di- not getting along. Yeah, Vin Diesel. So there is a question of like, well, there won't be that same sort of power ensemble that you would have had in the last three, four movies, four movies, three movies. Um, and but it's okay because if they're spinning it off into this, that's. I mean, I, I just I care more about the Rock's character than I do uh, D- Dom. Yeah, I I do love Dom Toretto. Uh, Dom, um, family, family. I, how Vin Diesel can both whisper and yell at the same time? I have no idea. He is impossible to do impression of. Uh, but yeah, I I think that that Fallout probably ended up creating a spinoff, which I've never seen it where just personal animosity usually would make somebody just leave a franchise. But I mean, The Rock was sort of there and coincided with the rise to superstardom for Fast and Furious. Mm-hmm. And yep. it, you don't want to lose him because he's such a he's such a powerhouse. And, um, and he's also super likable, too. I mean, there's something about The Rock that is just immediately likable that sort of transcends even being a fan of any of his stuff. You just follow him on any well, social media. The Rock has been able to do family comedy, which, as I recall, Vin Diesel tried it once, and it was just a Facebook. Oh, pacifier. Pacifier. <laughs> But yeah, Vin Diesel is one of those guys. I was mixing them up. I thought it was the Tooth Fairy, but the Tooth Fairy was the Rocks. The Tooth Fairy was the Rock, and uh, the sequel to the Tooth Fairy was Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, God. So there's there's definitely a drop in quality. <laughs> Larry the Cable Guy is usually a sign of the fact that your that your series has gone off the rails. Uh, Larry um, the Cable um, Guy was also the star of Jingle All the Way too. Yes, that's right. Yes, also direct to DVD. So he he tends to pick up the reins from a these muscle bound star. These are movies I did not know existed. Now I'm going to have to go home and scrub these images from my brain. <laughs> oh, do we tell him about Kindergarten Cop too? <laughs> no, <laughs> it doesn't have Larry the Cable Guy in it. Fortunately, because actually Kindergarten Cop is one of my other few. Arnold's. I forgot that when we were talking before. Uh, yeah. I'm actually very fond of kindergarten. Me too. Yeah. Me yep. too. I was just thinking, um, if you could, you could do a good Dom impression, which is hard to do, a good Vin Diesel impression. Yeah. But what? But could you do a good Vin Diesel impression? Vin Diesel doing an impression of Sylvester Stallone. 
and oh. have it not turn into just a Sylvester Stallone it's an impression. It's Ouroboros. It's eating yeah. its own tail. <laughs> it's very throaty. I'll give you a nightmare you don't believe. I can't do it. Hey, it's easier to do Sylvester <laughs> Stallone than it is because you just kind of have to talk out of your, your throat. Right, but how would Vin Diesel do it where he has the growl? Mm. Yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it, man. It's impossible. Yeah, Vin Diesel is like Frank Welker. Get Frank Welkers on the on the. Fr- he get like Frank Welker five hundred thousand dollars, and he'll do it for you. On the, your the Fast voice. and Furious animated series. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I would not be shocked if that happened at some point. Um, it Maurice Lamar. It used to be Money in the Bank. Yeah, it used to be a thing that happened. Well, see, Saturday morning cartoons are gone now. Yeah, they. But it, it used to be a thing. The the Partridge Family in in space. Punky um, Brewster had a cartoon. The Alf cartoon? There was an Alf cartoon. There was a cartoon for the Happy Days where the Happy Days gang got stuck in a time machine. Sure. As you do. Building Ted's Excellent Adventure. Back had to a, the Future. Had a, Police Academy. Highlander had one. The, mm-hmm. So they, they don't they don't quite do that very much even more. They definitely almost every um non Disney and even some of the Disney animated features end up having their own shows like yeah. inferior versions of the shows yeah and, and of course it's a huge thing now to be rebooting classic 80s uh 70s and 80s cartoons into like the netflix fodder like the she-ra just came back again like that's apparently though that's way better than the original this is right. a thing a lot of fans of he-man and she-ra don't want to hear but those shows are not good <laughs> they're and excruciatingly bad they're and, really bad and i you know uh weird piece of trivia is that Barbara Benedetto that worked at Filmation for years painting backgrounds was one of my studio mates at the Elkai Bathhouse Art Studio after she retired and uh, one day she came down with this giant bag of stuff because I had I had wanted her to come and talk to my students and she's like oh no get up and talk in front I could never do that <laughs> it's like they're 11 you'd be a rock star really it's like oh no 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 and and I just kind of thought oh well but apparently it ate at her the most terrible way that she had to say no. And one day she came down with this giant shopping bag full of old paintings cool. and cells and shit. And a lot of it was from She-Ra. Oh, hmm. wow. Yeah. And because when Rin came out for the Emerald City show, she Rin grew up on She-Ra and she loves it. And I showed her this bag and she was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to do with it. I, I took it to class, and let the kids paw through it a little bit. But hmm. uh, it's mostly just still sitting in the bag at the house. I don't quite know what to do with it. I would feel awful trying to sell it online or something. Oh, so yeah. I can't do that. Yeah, it's it's it's. I strange. don't really have anywhere to display it, but I can tell you that it's stunning work i yeah i think that with a lot of the tv animation stuff um where the 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 economic nature of doing tv animation obviously part of the it was most of the cell the character animation is done overseas or as it used to be done in huge rooms full of ladies in white gloves oh yeah so we're we're making cartoons the same way we distribute cocaine (laughs) everyone's in their underwear making cartoons (laughs) that's actually not very far off the filmation was um the i think the last of the uh houses to to keep everything in country and even they gave up and started farming it out to uh, korea 
Yeah. Um, nobody was Hopefully making, South Korea. Hopefully. You never know. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. When I, your, when I your honestly cartoon don't is going to end up in North Korea. The, the funny thing with a lot of the 80s nostalgia reboots that's interesting to me, and we, we, we talk about this a lot, you know, the phrase, I know we've probably used it a thousand times, so why don't you reboot the bad stuff? They kind of are. Yeah. Um, well, we, they absolutely are. Battlestar Galactica is like the... the platonic ideal of that. Yeah, that Battlestar Galactica the original was a piece of shit it, it was, was a terrible shit that really was the torch that I think lit this we're having this continual conversation that we are, we have about the fact that yeah there's a lot of just sort of easy cash in shit when it comes to a reboot of something that was incredibly successful where oh you've got the you've got the name there's some inexplicable ones like I think making the Lone Ranger movie was just sort of like who who is the target audience for this movie um, and then there is the stuff where, you well, know, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Greg. The trouble is no one makes the Ranger movie. I want to see. Sure. Of course. I, I want to see the Ranger be the Ranger, but I want it against the backdrop of a spaghetti Western. Oh, yeah. you need the, to see the first the, segment of Buster Scruggs. The, <laughs> the dynamite comic book was the only time that happened mm, and it's it's staggeringly I think you, you good you could do it i think that's the same thing with superman they say which is you know oh we have to make superman dark no keep superman the same and make the world realistic and that contrast will be shocking that awesome. will be the engine that drives the thing yeah then yeah. the arc is the ranger having to prove to his his crappy corrupt sheriff or whoever it is that's lost the battle to clean up the town that it can be done yeah and i think there's a really good movie there there is and i think you can do it i think is the lone ranger public domain now no no the lone ranger is it's one of those things the lone ranger is trademarked okay Mm. so he's like mickey mouse you just can't but i I know that we just opened up uh, the latest, I think it's 1923 is that cutoff point right now. A bunch uh-huh. of stuff just went into the public domain, I think. Well, what you can do is reprint the earliest Lone Ranger novel and not have to pay anybody anything. Mm. Okay, so but you, can't, you can only use the elements in the novel? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure you even get to use anything else because once you're using the Ranger and new stuff, then you have to pay a fee. Yeah. If you're using Tonto and new stuff, you have to pay a fee. I'm, I'm, I think even Silver and Scout are covered. Oh, mm, yeah. interesting. So, yeah, that's the stuff I was kind of curious about because I know we're kind of getting into never say never again territory that you have to be very selective about that, that you don't get the entire history of a character. You get the stuff beyond a certain before a certain well, point. Well, the the example where you really get to see it play out is the Land of Oz. Yes. Hmm. Uh, the, the Ruby Slippers. Yeah. Best example of that's an element that when you do any sort of Oz, you can do an Oz movie, but any element that's become iconic because of an adaptation is a something you're going to have to buy the license to. Uh-huh. So you can do Oz, but you can't do the Ruby Slippers. Yeah, you have to do the Silver Slippers, which are the uh-huh. ones in the original book. But obviously, when you're doing something in this glorious Technicolor, red looks a lot better on the big screen, so right. changing that up. So when you get a, a sequel to something that uses the ruby slippers they basically have to write a check to mgm that's crazy it's the uh, 
the way the lawyers it it would make sense to a lawyer it doesn't make sense to a normal person yeah um, so if the lone ranger's original novel is public domain and i don't know if it is um you can use the lone ranger it is you- because i have a shitty bootleg edition of it it's called the lone ranger rides it's by fran striker and it's in the public domain hmm. and that's the the original incarnation of the character uh no the original incarnation of the character was on radio right and i think that has fallen into the public domain as well at least the first year or two hmm. okay so anything um, that appears in that, that in first fact year. the first few years the first season of the show is in the public domain which is why there's so many shitty black and white dvds of the first season of the lone ranger interesting the good stuff when it was in color and they'd been at it for a while um is licensed yeah because hmm. i think i believe this past year i think the the edgar rice burroughs library has become public domain now yep some of it um i think i think there's a bunch of agatha christie stuff that has opened up too but stuff that you can adapt now but you can't just assume that anything from any incarnation is fair game you have to sort of figure your stuff out and have your lawyers look over okay anything from this stuff backwards which is why you know james bond couldn't have specter for such a long time and if the people who made never say never again want to make another movie they basically have to keep remaking thunderball but changing the nouns (laughs) yeah exactly oh and um I mean, there's a whole weird snake pit of things that you stumble into. A lot of what I do at Airship 27 is dealing with pulp superheroes that have fallen into the public domain. And that's that's been a nice business for us. Uh, Sherlock Holmes technically is in the public domain. Right. Um, I'm not sure. I think even the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, which was the last collection of stories Doyle put out, I think that may have even been in the public. But it's not really a problem because... People have been doing such loose adaptations of the stories. There's uh, now there's one with Holmes and Watson as two Asian women. Sure. I think it's called Miss Sherlock. Well, you know that's kind of how I feel about it. One of my favorite versions has been a young adult series where uh, it's the called Charlotte Holmes. And the mm-hmm. thing that's interesting about it is that in story. The Sherlock Holmes phenomenon has happened. She is like the great, great, great granddaughter of uh, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, she hooks up with uh, Jamie Watson, a guy who is the great, great, great grandson of Dr. John Watson. And um, and they both are saddled with this family legacy of partnership and we're supposed to be friends and we're supposed to fight crime and they're kind of pushing back against it a little bit but they get embroiled in adventures anyway and it's it's tremendous fun it's been a bestseller it's a very hot property in the young adult literature cool. yeah i think world. i've seen i've seen some stuff from that it's it's kind of it's kind of nice though i think that the sherlock holmes is probably one of the best examples that i have of how much better a lot of this stuff would be if we didn't have such draconian laws event. Well, you you can argue it both ways. It's worked out pretty well for Sherlock Holmes. Um, It really hasn't worked out that well for The Land of Oz because a lot of what people did with The Land of Oz was do this deconstructionist adult reimagining stuff where you have Todd McFarlane putting out toys featuring S&M Dorothy and, <laughs> and uh, you know, Dark Oz, Bloodstained Oz. I was telling Casey about this earlier. It's, you know, sometimes these things are just not appropriate. I, the example I always use is this arrested adolescent idea that I have to take this childhood character that I love and drag him along with me into adulthood. Mm-hmm. 
And um, sometimes that can work. Like Miracle Man? Like Miracle Man. Or, um, you know, there are a couple of good adult Oz things out there. Um, I would add to that, um, I don't actually remember the character's name. In one of the criminal, one of Bed Brubaker's criminals, they basically took Archie, yes. uh, rolled Archie forward into adulthood, but um, Archie it's, becomes sort of a... a it's a, a crime noir series starring essentially analogs of the Archie gang. Right. And, Ar- <laughs> and, and Archie uh, is an asshole who wants to... Uh, wants his his wife. I don't know which one of it's it, supposed to be so to die, so he so, can get the inheritance. So basically, he's somebody who made the decision after high school to marry Veronica for her money. But her dad currently was caught, you know, caught the whiff of this, and he's in a very elaborate um, a prenup, so he can't get out of it. And he wants this money, but he realizes now, like fifteen years later, that he's not happy that he wants to leave, and he can't divorce her and keep the money at the same time. He wants to be with Betty. So he decides that he needs to murder his wife, <laughs> and it kind of goes from there. And um, well, if it's in true Archie Andrews fashion, he would do it so ineptly and stupidly that <laughs> he kills her through a pratfall. But the, uh, the th- oh, I like that Jughead is his junkie friend. Oh yes. yeah, his junkie friend that he sets up, and, yeah. and uh, Reggie's a fucking asshole. Hey, they didn't change that one. <laughs> but um, the cool thing is that there are two characters that appear in the story, which aren't really Archie characters, but they're analogs for other ones. There's a rich guy who's very clearly a middle-aged richie rich and there's another guy who's the cop who's this private detective who's hunting them down and he does say at one point he's like i've been i've been exposing sons of bitches like you since i was 10 years old and it's like holy shit that's encyclopedia brown (laughs) okay but these are analogs yeah they're analogs they're not the real character see that's kind of my thing i i would rather see an analog i would rather see miracle man than yeah. Captain Marvel. Oh God! If they did I, that to I, Captain Marvel, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. This is this is what I'm saying. If, you'll, you'll have to explain Miracle Man to me. Miracle Man is um, it started as the British comics just wanting to reprint the Shazam Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. and then they lost the license or something happened, and they did what any sleazy comic book publisher would do. Knockoff. <laughs> they they did a knockoff called Marvel Man. And um, and it was you know it was moderately successful I guess Marvel probably, Man and Kid Marvel Man and uh, and Young Marvel Man Young yeah they were all instead of you know Captain Marvel and Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Junior for some reason Mary Marvel got a sex change <laughs> I get I I guess in case you know the Captain Marvel guys lawyered up or something right but uh, but it was you know it was a moderately successful in Britain and apparently it was enough of British childhood that Alan Moore remembered it. Mm. And Alan, what do you think Alan Moore did? <laughs> <laughs> Turned him into a violent hobo? I don't know. Um, Not? He, he's, totally far off. <laughs> that's actually pretty close. He did a story where um, we checked in on these characters, I guess, um, what, yeah, it so was 80, he, so it would be, what, 30 years? Yeah, 25? he's like a middle-aged guy who's going about his day, and he doesn't remember that in the 1960s he had superpowers. And the thing with with Marvel Man is that he sees, um, he says, instead of Shazam to transform, he says uh, Kimoda, which is atomic backwards. Okay. And he transforms into Marvel Man, and he's at something where he sees a reflection of the word atomic backwards, and he says it. And it's a hostage situation. Yeah. So, you know, he's in trouble, and he's... His adrenaline's up. And he transforms into this hero, and all of his memories come back, and the thing with him is now he's 
physically perfect, but he's also sort of morally perfect in a way that he isn't. All the human flaws and bullshit and insecurities fall away when he's Marvel Man. And um, he starts getting these memories back. And there's, of course, this dark conspiracy behind everything. Why doesn't the world remember Marvel Man? And, um, you know, what happened to the other ones? Like, kid Marvel Man uh, does remember who he is. He's the only one who hasn't lost his memory. And he's just been in this body forever and has grown up. But has all this this power. He's become a psychopath. And there's it just gets bloody <laughs> and dark. And There's sl- been no check on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, there was uh, there was no Marvel Man senior to to help raise him and bully him into behaving. And it's revealed that all of these 1960s stories about uh, Marvel Man were elaborate uh, memory implants by the government when they had sort of created him to use as basically a, a colonialist kind of weapon that they could send him in. That he thinks that he's living out these like Adam West Batman stories in his head, these sort of 1960s Otto Bender style Superman stories. And really what he's doing is destroying, you know, some small country. (laughs) And they start to realize that they can't really control him and they try to kill him. But really all they do is give him amnesia and they think they've killed him. And that's where this sort of goes. That's cool. So that's what I mean. We sort of take a thing that we love from childhood and how do we drag it into adulthood? Most of the time it's not done well. Alan Moore is just a really good writer. Mm -hmm. And this was also incredibly novel at the time. It's not a like a sad, sweaty cliche the way it is now. So, uh, those stories actually do hold up really well. well. They do. And, um, and it, I'm not saying it can't be done, but by and large, it mostly, it shouldn't be your go-to move. And it became the go-to move in the wake of Alan Moore. And it was Mm. just so fucking overused. And Alan Moore himself has often said that, Jesus Christ, if I, if I thought this was going to be the trend, I wouldn't have done it. These were one-offs. These were Mm. not things that were meant to be imitated. Mm. Yeah. And I think he said that same thing about uh, the killing joke too, which was probably one of his most successful Eisner award-winning things that he's ever done ever is that it ended up creating this trend that dragged it down and it's like echoes of echoes and it just becomes dumber and more mean-spirited over time to the point that you you have a book like Kingdom Come which is sort of Mark Wade's pushback rhetorically against this kind of comic book storytelling where heroes are basically roving gangs that just get into fights and don't care about people anymore. So Superman has to come out of retirement to stop it. Um, where the, the lead villain character of kingdom come is essentially this distilled version of all this nineties angst and anger. So, um, I never, a lot of people are trying to refocus that as that like, Oh, this is, um, Mark Wade's re- response to Watchmen, and no, it's not. It's it's Mark Wade's response to all the shit that copied it's, Watchmen. It's Mark Wade's response to like Young Blood, yes, or or something like that. The X Forces, the cables, and it's like you know I'm, I'm extreme, and I've covered in pouches and cyborg parts. And I'm, I'm, how do you look at the visual design on somebody like Magog and get Watchmen? Yeah, that's not Watchmen. That's not Watchmen. That he is the living embodiment of the '90s. I mean, everything even straight up has the cable scar across one of his eyes, and he's got a robot arm. Mm-hmm. the The thing that he's implying is very clear with the, with this art in this book. 
that's what he was aiming at. He was, he was taking a shot at the 90s, and that's why Superman is put as sort of the counterbalance. Like Superman not only is the first superhero, but he's also sort of the living embodiment of the, sort of the simpler time and sort of a heroics that doesn't involve scaring the shit out of everybody that you save. Um, and... You know, it's like, we're just going to, you know, fuck off with all this. Like, I'm so dark and angry. I'm just going to kill everyone and fighting with my dark side. And it just, when it was novel, when like fucking Wolverine did it in like the late 70s, this was new. And I think this is the part, it isn't something being light or something being dark that makes it good or bad. It's when something becomes so trite and cliche because everyone is fucking doing it. And Alan Moore stuff was a breath of fresh air when it came out in the 1980s because it was so different from the past few decades of stuff. So nowadays we kind of live in a world where it's the opposite, where something like Batman Brave and the Bold is like fucking refreshing. Something with this character that isn't dark and postmodern and is just fucking fun. And I think that's kind of where we are with Batman is the need to sort of turn that on its head again, that you need to change this stuff up or it just gets copies of copies of copies. And it just, it's impossible. Well, here's the thing that I can't figure out. Um, as long as we're talking about DC and darkness and Batman and so on, the most successful movies they've had are Wonder Woman and Aquaman, mm -hmm. which were both deliberate efforts to lighten up and how are they not the these things are always driven by money a lot of the problem with dc in the theater was dark knight made more money than god so everything has to look like dark knight yeah and it really doesn't yeah i think i think that the audience and this goes even beyond superhero stuff i think audiences like um they like fun they like whimsy. It's not cool, and it wasn't certainly cool in the 80s and 90s to say you liked this stuff, but it definitely touches on something in people that they get excited about a world that can be fantastical and fun and even a little silly sometimes, that not everything has to be super serious and grounded. And I think that we've done so much serious, grounded stuff, especially superheroes, but not just superheroes, that it's nice to to mix it up a little bit, to get a little bit of roughage in your diet, so to speak. <laughs> or like, well, you, know, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I think that we kind of are in a place now where I want to mix diet. We have so much stuff that just comes out all the time that I want to not be fed various versions of the same thing over and over again. And But I, you know, you're the exception. You are the exception. The... Um I mean, first of all, in Hollywood, the mantra is nobody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be second. Mm -hmm. So nobody is making Raiders of the Lost Ark, but then that comes out and it's a success, and you get High Road to China and Tales of the Gold Monkey and God knows what all else. Right. God, what was that one um, with Richard Chamberlain, the Ellen um, Quatermain oh, movie yeah. that yeah, Canon Films was King made? King Solomon Mines. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You know. Um, I think even in uh, Chamberlain was like, yeah, this movie was made on a budget of $10. <laughs> but um i think i'm going to be on that note i think i'm going to be very interested to see what will follow in the wake of spider-man into the spider-verse that's which what, is a, which is a, yeah. the biggest tangent i think to the glut of superhero movies in the past decade um Can and we do something fun and experimental and different and animated with a licensed character it doesn't have to be a superhero but what if we did something kind of fun and crazy but you let an auteur, I mean, Lord and Miller, 
um, have an ability to take something that sounds like a really bad idea, whether it's the Lego movie, and turn it into something that's utterly classic. It's also my favorite use of Will Ferrell in anything ever. <laughs> um, but I mean, the thing too is that they also have a, a sort of a point underneath a lot of this stuff. There's sort of a meta point, but there's also an in-story point. I mean, Lego, the fact that they signed off on the Lego movie to me is kind of shocking because it's a movie that's essentially about how you need to share toys with kids and how you shouldn't just build these huge elaborate by the box sets, which are the basically the lifeblood of, of Lego's business model is the characters like the Will Ferrell character in that they are the, the target market who wants to build this huge elaborate, totally working death star and the the doomsday kind of one ring of the movie, the craggle, is essentially it it's crazy glue. That it's the thing mm-hmm. that that says, Oh, you build this thing, but you can't turn it into anything else now. You already built the one perfect thing and don't touch the toy. Because it's a collectible. And I kind of love that element of it because it's saying, No, use your imagination, do new things, make fun, crazy shit, and share this stuff with kids. And that's where the future is. And apparently the, the second uh, Lego movie, which I haven't seen yet, is all about learn to fucking share shit with girls. <laughs> and grow the fuck up. And, you know, and I kind of, I kind of like that. I kind of like it has that point to it. Um, where if you look at, um, Spider-Verse, it, it does the same thing to, um, to Spider-Man that, that uh, we saw in the Lego Batman movie was let's, let's look at this character as a cultural icon. And it's also probably the most to from the comic accurate depiction of a Spider-Man story that I've probably ever seen. And it also is experimental both technologically and, and artistically yeah. in ways that we haven't seen with animated superhero stuff. So that's the part that I'm the most interested in. Cause I was just, I think I was seeing something from Hellblazer had a uh, animated movie released tw- for 2018. And I think I, I think I watched the first 10 minutes of it and, uh, I, you know, I always make the illusion between Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Batman the Animated Series since I read Marvel comics and I didn't, uh, my first sort of real exposure to Batman was the Animated Series. That also happened to be a sea change in uh, animation for television because obviously prior to that we had, but we were talking about the He-Mans and She-Ras of the world or the G.I. Joes and Transformers of the world, which... um, uh, or going back even further, or worse, Super Friends, where the animation was just awful. Um, Batman the Animated Series was, was kind of a revolution about how to do very high quality animation for these for these stories and these characters. Flash forward now to 2018, that they they've carried the art form forward in a way that I want to know who picks up the mantle. Not just like what's going to be Spider Man into the Spider Verse two. Who how is that going to change not only storytelling for um, superheroes, but this, that type of a- animation where it becomes more about pushing the medium forward, uh, um, not just the genre, but also the medium itself forward, because it's it's open now. It's compl- it's bust open. We we are gonna continue to have Disney Marvel live action movies in the same vein, probably for the next decade, I'd imagine, or longer. But the, the but thing I'm more interesting... interested. In, I'm more interested in where. <clears throat> Excuse me, more interested in where the animation is going to be taken from here. The interesting thing, though, is that the two most revolutionary superhero pieces, and we already kind of 
we get we can get stuck down this thing forever. Were not made by Disney. Um, they were made with Marvel characters. The most recent ones. One is Logan, and the other one is Spider Verse. Both of them are made by other studios. Once those get wrapped back into Disney, we're not going to get that sort of experimentation yeah. again. I really worry about that, and I think that um, the beautiful thing about Spider Verse is it doesn't have to just be about Spider Man. Spider Man is just the beautiful thing that pulls you into people kind of giving their artistic vision of this character. I mean, the things that I love in this movie are there are bits where they change the frame rate. Yeah. Apparently, the frame rate between Miles and Peter, there's a bit where they're escaping from a lab. And um, they give Miles a much jerkier animation style while he's swinging than Peter because Peter's more experienced. So Peter looks more comfortable. And it has this little effect of... Of, of sort of changing how you feel. I mean, there's little on-air sound effects where something goes like boink and bounces off of something's head or uh, Miles has a thought bubble several times in the movie. Um, they actually visually depict the spider sense going around people's heads. Yeah. Um, they will occasionally jump to single images of sort of graffiti art. They will do all sorts of stuff. Um, like when things are out of focus, it's not blurry in the way that things are blurry um, we're in, like, say, a Pixar movie where they blur it the way it would look if it was photographed, mm-hmm. but they'll do it as if it's like 3D, like there's two levels of something to make it yeah. blurry. And it's like little choices like that are the things that I'd like to see carried over into another animated movie. It doesn't have to be about Spider-Man. It can be about any character or a new character, but it makes well, me that's sort of- the problem. See, the, the, what you're describing is the Watchmen cycle. Watchmen came out and set everything on its ear. And instead of saying, oh, let's take stuff that we've known since childhood and try new ways of looking at it, it was, oh, this was a big hit. Let's do this. So what I'm worried about is we're going to see into the Spider-Verse 2 and 3 and 4 and and so on, and they're just going to redo the same story over and over, which is how these people think. Maybe, but but the people who read Watchmen, the people who became artists and writers for comic books in the modern era of creator-owned creator-owned comics, I'm okay with the number of times that a DC or a Marvel character has been shoehorned into a dark and gritty version of itself, so long as I can have the hundreds of other uh, original storytelling that uh, that these that those creators sort of cut their teeth on by reading Watchmen and pouring over it. it. Is sort of the I'm Sturg- fine with that. It's a little bit of the Sturgeon's Law thing, the, the 10% and the 90%. I know. And, and um, the 10% is getting bigger, too. That That's true. But uh, what I would like to see is just the idea that you can take something established and play with it. And it doesn't... Into the Spider-Verse was all over the place. But you know what they never did? They never broke the toys. Right. Which is a big thing for me with these continuing character franchises you damage something beyond repair and then waltz off onto your next great avant-garde thing Mm -hmm. and meanwhile there are people left behind who are not nearly at that talent level but they're nevertheless tasked with somehow going on and usually the result is just painful yeah and that's 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 the place where i think continuity um it can be fun because it's fun to watch batman meet superman and team up on an adventure but when you have to acknowledge the missteps and you have to incorporate that into the story instead of just doing what a lot of comics used to do, which is just ignore the shit that doesn't work and move on to something else. I always think that that was a better – one of my favorite little bits of that is in the 90s there was a bit 
like the late nineties where they revamped the Punisher and now he was tasked by heaven to become, have these like mythical guns and shoot demons and stuff like that. <laughs> so he had these like magical glowing angel guns and it was fucking stupid and it didn't last. <laughs> and the next person to pick up the Punisher was Garth Ennis, who did a series called Welcome Back Frank, which has, it means more than one thing, clearly. <laughs> and he's just a regular Punisher at the beginning. And there's like one throwaway line about, yeah, I tried to be an angel one, didn't take or something, or that was stupid. <laughs> and to the degree that he's forced to say anything about it, I, you know, I'd rather just move past it rather than make another 12 fort, you know, part fucking story that's all about how he stopped being an angel and just like, can we just move past that? Nobody likes that. <laughs> and, but there's this kind of, this is the nerd disease that we, need to fill in every fucking gap and have an explanation for everything where well, we can't just let it go even if we hate it which is fine but let's leave it where it belongs which is with the nerd audience yeah you yeah. know it doesn't need to infect the professionals producing the primary material mm -hmm. that's the problem you get all these fans turned pro that want to see the story they always needed to know where Barry Allen's bow tie came from. It's like, no, no one was asking for that. No one gives a shit. You're weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, he just likes bow ties. Is that not know, enough? Um, but see, with Sherlock Holmes, you had the Baker Street Irregulars who have made like this, literally, it's been going on for a century now, writing these scholarly essays about why Sherlock Holmes was using cocaine in this story and now he's not using it in that story and da 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 da, da. and occasionally it blows up into something like the seven percent solution mm -hmm. but mostly these are just scholarly essays that they publish in their fanzine and that's great you know you guys do you that's that's how fans roll that's how that's our thing but you should never try and turn your fan fiction into the real thing and this is kind of my issue um, at no point did Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica feel the need to explain the difference between them and the Lauren Green Battlestar Galactica. Mm. They just didn't need to go there at all. Yeah. You, you know, you had, you had Richard Hatch on after a while who, you know, played a completely different character, played a completely different character. And that's kind of a bone to throw. You throw a bone to the base. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. But you don't let them lead you. You're the producer of the creative product. You lead the audience. They do not lead you. This is the problem that Gene Roddenberry had with Star Trek, the motion picture. He'd been doing a decade of these fan appearances where they were worshiping as a Messiah and he forgot what his job was. Mm. You know, Greg, I thought the reason why Sherlock Holmes did cocaine was because he liked the nightlife and liked to boogie. I thought that's <laughs> why, but I may not have read what you read. That, that is entirely <laughs> correct, actually. Um, no, he uh, he liked the rush. <laughs> that was his thing. Yep. And, um, you know, there was a sketch that they did on Saturday Night Live years ago with Michael Palin where he was just a total... 70s coke hound and <laughs> as Holmes and it that's was fall down funny that's great but it was not canonically inaccurate right <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. 
please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Time ticks past. 20 years later, Alan Moore starts writing and Gary Leach starts drawing Marvel Man. What Alan Moore did that was so brilliant was just take it seriously. Billy Batson, Michael Moran, has grown up and he's in his 40s, he's overweight, he's sad. There's something that he can't remember, although he doesn't know that what he can't remember is the word transformed him into Marvel Man slash Miracle Man. Kimota, which was atomic spelt backwards. During a terrorist attack on an atomic power station, he remembers, and now uh, Miracle Man slash Marvel Man is back in business. And that uh, was the, the glory of the return of Marvel Man. There's just one moment, there's one panel, where Michael Moran is telling his wife all of this stuff that happened to him as a kid and he's filling her in and she starts laughing and he says damn it Liz you're laughing at my life that ripped me up back then and it's it's kind of strange now because you show people that stuff and they're like well yeah they do not realize that that is almost the foundation on which everything that has happened since in terms of comics was built. Many, many careers were created, including mine. I don't believe that I would have actually gone to write comics. You know, I wanted to write comics when I was 15 or 16, and then I looked at comics and it's like, well, there's nothing really here for me. The great thing about Alan Moore coming into comics was looking at it and going, okay, this is work that is as intellectually powerful, as emotionally challenging as anything that I'm seeing in cinemas, on the stage, or in prose. And everything I ever thought about writing comics must be true. You, you can do it. Alan did, if, if it was TV, it would have been three seasons. Once uh, Miracle Man ruled a world in which uh, criminality, war, and all of those things had been done away with, gave the comic to me. And that was what sent me back in, and that was where Sandman came from.